Goddag og velkommen til Langsomme Samtaler. Mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg. Jeg har i denne uge talt med en decideret legende. Jeg har talt med den verdensberømte britiske idehistoriker Quentin Skinner, som for kun 14 dage siden blev 81 år. Han er født i 1940, vokset op under 2. verdenskrig og kan huske bombardementerne, og han kan huske, hvordan de skulle krybe ned i kælderen, og hvordan de ikke anede, hvordan verden tog ud, når de kom op fra kælderen igen. Han har skrevet nogle meget store og væsentlige idehistoriske værker, blandt andet om Niccolo Machiavelli og Thomas Hobbes, og om grundlæggelsen af hele den moderne politiske tænkning. Han har skrevet en enormt vigtig bog, der kom i 1998, som hed Liberty Before Liberalism, som var et opgør med hele vestens frihedsbegreb. Han har skrevet en bog, som hedder Fra Humanisme til Hobbes, som handler om opgøret med hele middelalderens dydsetik og frem til den moderne politiske orden. Der er meget få, der har trukket så store og så vigtige linjer i den moderne idehistorie, som Quentin Skinner har. Og jeg lover, at vi i den her samtale faktisk både kommer ind på en syn på historien, på en syn på idéer, på Thomas Hobbes og Machiavelli, og hvorfor han mener, at den krise, vi står over for i dag, er langt større end den, han voksede op med, da bomberne faldt og mørerne på ham i London i 1940'erne. Good evening and welcome to our viewers and listeners here in Copenhagen, and especially good evening to you, Quentin Skinner, who's with us from North London. Thank you so very much for being with us. For me, this is a great honor to be asked to take part in this interview. So I just want, first of all, to say thank you very much. And may I say special thanks to you for talking to me in my own language. This is a huge privilege, you know. Anglophones must never take this for granted. <laughs> no, but this is this is easy for us, uh, luckily. But when I when I introduce you to friends, I've done it over years. I always say that that you're an intellectual historian, and and then people ask me what is an intellectual historian, and I always find it a little bit difficult to. Then I refer to 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 your works and and what you do. So so I'm just curious. Uh, how did you originally come up with this occupation for yourself, and why did you choose it to be an intellectual historian? Well, that would be a long story about my um, education, but I can certainly tell you what it means to me to be an intellectual historian, which is that I take it that such an historian is someone who studies texts. And from my adolescence, I've been extremely interested in philosophy and in its history. Uh, and so um, I mainly study philosophical texts, but of course, in intellectual history, um, it's a textual form of study. but Oh, I would want to use the concept of a text here very widely so that um, a philosophical text, of course, is a text, but a painting or a building or indeed a garden or a musical composition, these can all be read as texts. And of course, they all come into the purview of, of intellectual history. The, it, this It always struck me that you focus on the discontinuities instead of the of the of the continuities and that we should always look at the canonical works that we keep studying as answers to question posed by or in their own time i think that's such an inspiring uh, approach and actually it differs from a lot of other ways of looking at it that has been quite dominant so, so i'm curious how, how did you develop that yourself that you focus on the discontinuities well um My approach to intellectual history 
it really arises from a central doctrine of one of my great intellectual heroes, Wittgenstein, which he summarized when he says, words are also deeds. So there are two dimensions we're saying to natural language. We use words to say things, but we also use words to do things. So for example, a given utterance could be an act of greeting or warning or response to something, and then it could be a defense of it, a celebration, a challenge, a refutation, and so on. So language you have to think of as a form of social action. And so in my view, the historian needs to ask, well, what exactly is the action here being performed? And so uh, in approaching texts, I always want to ask not just what are they saying, but what are they doing? And that's what puts you into the society in which they were written. So my method as an historian is to treat even the canonical texts in what I mostly study, moral and political philosophy, not as abstract and general statements of principle, but as interventions. Think of them as interventions in ongoing political debates. Um, and that's because what I want to find out is not just what these texts are saying, but where they fit into the ideologies of their age. That's to say, what is the intervention? And so the picture of the political philosopher, specifically for me, that emerges is that of someone who is preoccupied with, well, attacking or defending contentious policies or points of view or providing advice and warning about different courses of political action, or maybe just satirizing the passing political scene. I always take it then, and, and this is why I'm so interested in a contextual approach, is that all these writers, whatever else they're doing, are seeking to legitimize or delegitimize some prevailing institution or practice. And so the final outcome of my approach is actually to question any strong distinction between ideology and moral and political philosophy. I mean, it seems to me the classic text approached as I want to do um, are not above the battle, as Nietzsche would say. They are participants in, in a battle itself. Um, so, I mean, so why do I stress continuity, discontinuities? Um, yeah, well, that, that's such an important question for me. I, I suppose I feel that the past is so different from the present in every way that, that I'm suspicious of assuming that you can take canonical works of philosophy and put them in a kind of eternal present um, where you then take a concept like justice or rights or freedom and simply ask, well, what do they all say about this? Because then we can arrive at a, a definition. <laughs> I stress discontinuities, um, not just for that reason of suspicion, but also for a positive one. I think it is actually far more useful for us here and now to think about how some of our concepts used to be thought about very differently. I mean, in the case of many of our central concepts in moral and political theory, paths were not taken, ways of thinking were given up. And I've come to feel that what's most worth asking is whether the paths that we didn't take, the paths that have been abandoned in the onrush of history, might not have been the better ones to follow. Um, so, I mean, let me give you an example. A good example seems to me thinking about the concept of rights. I mean, nowadays we talk about human rights, and these we always treat as universal moral claims that anyone can make upon anyone else. Um, and indeed, the idea that there are such inalienable rights of nature that we all possess 
uh, and may even have been given by God as the author of nature, that has a long history. But for me, what's interesting is that it contrasts with a very different way of thinking about rights that used to be far more prominent. And that's the view, especially prominent in common law systems, according to which rights are actually historically grounded privileges. They emerge within specific political societies, and then they're tested for their usefulness over time. Some of them lapse, some of them come to seem so crucial to our purposes that they acquire the status of what used to be called fundamental rights, that's to say immunities from interference. So there's a way of thinking about rights, but notice that nothing has been said there about <laughs> rights as claims. This is a rival way of thinking about rights. It is a path not taken. You know, my question is, well, in thinking about human rights as universal moral claims, did we take the right path? I've come to think that we didn't. And that I think it would be very fruitful to investigate these different common law approaches, which I've now gestured at. Um, that's to say, thinking about rights not as claims, but as privileges and potentially as immunities. That would require a lot of historical excavation, but I think it might give us a much better way of thinking about rights. I mean, because at the present moment, the problem with talking about universal human rights is, you know, they turn out to be everything that's good for life. And if you look at the United Declaration, it's a human right to have two weeks paid a holiday a year. Well, I mean, try telling that to a Chinese peasant. I mean, what are you talking about? I think we need to particularize the concept. And so there's uh, one way of thinking about an alternative. And another example, which I've written a lot about, is the concept of individual liberty. Here, I think we definitely took the wrong path. And there's a good example. There's a very beautiful, uh, there's a very beautiful phrase in liberty before liberalism, where you say that it's about uncover the often neglected riches of our own intellectual heritage and display them once more for view. And, and I think that is such a beautiful phrase because it shows how that if you stress that the past is definitely different and it's not just a mirror of what we are today, but if you really try to yeah. reconstruct their situation, their yeah. ideas, their ideology, if you if you go into that world and as a historian, as you are, I understand it's an end in itself to reconstruct it. Then when you open these doors, then you also find other entries to our present. And I think the example with liberty is, is, uh, is such a great example. And I, I was so impressed by the way that you found it in this, what you call the neo-Roman theory of, of freedom. W would you tell us about that? Well, I'd love to, and thank you, because that that is um, a book which I, I mean, it's a brief book, but it's one that I really wanted to write. And um, it, it is one that I'm happy to say has been much read because that is a case where I think we've gone the wrong way. And so, yes, I'd love to try to pursue some of these thoughts by, by way, as you suggest, of considering the concept of liberty. Okay, um, well, what do I want to say? I want to say that the classic statement of what I call the neo-Roman view of liberty, and this is why I call it neo-Roman, is to be found in what I think is, I've come to think, is the most influential of all works of legal and political philosophy that we've inherited from antiquity. I mean, the Codex of Roman Law. 
And the concept of liberty is analyzed at the very start of the digest of Roman law in the section which is entitled the status of men and women, de statu hominum. Now, that begins by affirming all men and women are either free persons or else they are slaves. Now, to be a slave, the digest goes on, is obviously to be the property of somebody else and is thereby to be entirely subject to their will and power. It is to live at the mercy of someone else. So a slave is someone who never acts according to their autonomous will. Now that is not because the master necessarily interferes with what the slave does, but it's simply because to be a master is to have power of interference if you choose. Because that being so, all the slave's actions have the character of permissions, which can always be withdrawn at the master's will. So a slave is someone who never acts exclusively according to their own will, because it's always an action they've been permitted to perform. Okay, there's the Roman law view of what it means to be a slave. But we began by saying everyone is either a free person, a liber homo, or a slave service. So now you can infer what it means to be a free person. A free person must be someone who is not subject to the arbitrary will of anyone else, and hence is always able to act according to their own autonomous will, unless the law says, um, unless they're stopped by the law or prevented. So you could say, and this always used to be said, certainly in the English language, that a free person is someone who doesn't have a master. A free person is, do you have something like this in Danish? Their own master. Yes, we have exactly the same expression. Very good. You are, that's what it is to be free. You are your own master. So there's the neo-Roman statement of the theory. You even find a place in Discorsi by Machiavelli where he's exposing this and where he's developing this. Oh, this, absolutely. Uh, this. And I think it's important because, you know, very often Machiavelli is associated with Iago from Othello, someone who's just <laughs> a strategic cynic and, and you know, that that he he has no there's no real constructive normativity in him that it's all just strategies for for power and and that is a, your reading of him is actually a very good example of what you said before that what kind of a problem was he trying to solve in his yes. in in his writing and and what what is it that Machiavelli says in Discorsi uh, about this Neroma theory of freedom? Well, uh, it's, you give a beautiful example, and of course Machiavelli is a passionate Republican. And the, the discourses which you cite are discourses, of course, on Livy's history of Rome. And Machiavelli begins chapter one of his discourse by adopting Livy's view that what it means to be a free person and what it means to live in a free state is not to be subject to the will of any other person um, or any other state. So if you live under a prince or if you live in a colony, you are living subject to the will of someone else. And so Machiavelli says, people who live in colonies, they are slaves. He doesn't say they live like slaves, they are slaves. And so the opening chapter of the discourse, he sets up exactly the point you make. Uh, the contrast is between freedom and servitude. But I mean, also, I mean, since we're speaking about Machiavelli for a moment, very influentially, he also says what kind of a constitution you have to have for freedom. I mean, the sort of point that Montesquieu is picking up, what is a constitution for liberty? 
And Machiavelli says, well, it has to be a particular kind of mixed constitution because you've got to stop anyone from falling under the will of anyone else. And in any polity, you've got two classes. You've got the grandee, as he calls them, um, and in his constitution, he gives them the Senate, as in Rome. But you've got the popolo, and they have their own representatives, of course, the tribunes in Rome. And then Machiavelli says, all right, it's got to be a constitutional requirement that nothing passes into law unless they both agree. The grandee will try to act in their own interests. The popolo will be corrupt, and they will try to stop them. But, but they will try to stop them. <laughs> Each will stop the other, uh, because the popolo will want their interests. So Machiavelli says, there you, ha you have it. Nothing can happen unless everyone agrees. Now, of course, his contemporaries said, well, that's going to mean that politics is a continual battleground. And he says, yeah, that is true, but that is the price of liberty. That's what it is to have a free life, because otherwise someone is going to get silenced, and that's because they're subject to someone else's power. And this freedom here that we're talking about, it contrasts with this liberal free conception oh, of that is dominant today, where we... We usually just identify liberty as freedom from coercion. Uh, yes. Where this is, a, and this is a, and and of course, in many areas of our life, we are free from coercion, but we do not feel free as citizens at all. You know, when I see my kids, they start in school, and they're told, "Well, you should uh, join a Facebook group in order to be to 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 be doing a, to be doing your homework with others." And I say, "No, my kids shall not ever join a Facebook group." And that's yeah. a good example of thing. There's no coercion. Yeah. That that exactly captures the distinction. I mean, the contrast between what I've now tried to lay out, neo-Roman view of freedom, um, and the liberal view, is that um, I mean, the liberal view in the Anglophone tradition, of course, can be traced to Hobbes, and then it's picked up by the utilitarians, Jeremy Bentham, John Stuart Mill, and you find it in contemporary liberalism. I mean, John Rawls in his celebrated theory of justice has exactly your view. That's that's to say the view you've just articulated, which is the liberal view is that freedom consists in there being no coercive interference with my choices. That's freedom. Um, if no one interferes with my choices and actions, I'm free. So notice um, a fundamental difference between that view and the neo-Roman one is that the liberal view thinks that what's fundamental to liberty is freedom of choice. The neo-Roman view thinks that what is fundamental is being a free person. It's not about choice, it's about not being subject to other people's will. Now, as you say, I mean, choice, freedom of choice is very important. And indeed, um, in the neo-Roman view, a free person, the freedom of a free person is being able to choose as you want. But here's the point. What is fundamental to freedom? Um, the neo-Roman says being a free person. The liberal says having choice. But the reason why the neo-Roman view is more powerful here is that if you're not a free person, as I said at the beginning, but if you're subject to somebody else, then you never choose freely because the master could always intervene. So all your actions are just expressions of what you're permitted to do. But of course, the other reason why the neo-Roman is so keen on your being a free person 
is that it's not just the name of a status. It is a whole experience of life. If you're a free person, you're, you are not inhibited by what other people may think of you. you. You have no risk of falling into servility because nobody has controlling power over you. Now, do you have this phrase in Danish? You can look anyone in the eye. Not we we don't have it we don't have it exactly in the same wording, but 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 we have another expression which which has the same the same understanding that you're not subordinate to to anyone you don't feel inferior when you meet anyone. Yes, very good. And so there's what I think of as the democratic element in the neo-Roman view. I am not subject to anyone else's will. I'm subject to my own will, and so I can look you in the eye. I'm I'm not your slave. I'm not. There's nothing servile about me, and, and that's the promise of the of the neo-Roman view. And how would that differ from? Because I think that we're all very mixed when it comes to to some relations. We're all romantics and say we should not, we should obey our hearts. And when it comes to discussing traffic regulation, we're all rationalists and say that they should follow certain logic and. When it comes to my daughter's rights as a young woman, I'm definitely liberalist on her be on, on her behalf. But then when it comes to collective action in Denmark and the green transition, then I think we have another conception of freedom, which is that we are not free citizens of Denmark if we are not able to act on this issue of climate change, which we know is yeah. threatening us. And and how do how does the neo-Roman view of freedom differ from what is the social democrat view of your freedom that acting in concert as a as a we well um it seems to me that what we've got in in the societies that you now talk about you speak of Denmark and I could speak of my society too is uh, a, an increase in liberal view of freedom uh, in recent times but um a decrease in freedom from arbitrary power um And I, I think the neoliberal version of liberalism, which has become so widely embraced in place of welfare state democracy, centers on the idea of freedom is non-interference with rights. And then it makes that the central value. Uh, and, and this is one of our gravest problems, because to a true libertarian, this makes law the straightforward enemy of liberty. Law, I mean, we have to admit this, as you say, law imposes a coercion threat. Uh, I mean, law is imposed with a threat of coercion lying behind it. But I mean, to a libertarian, liberty is defined as absence of coercion, as you've just said. And at the same time, of course, it's said to be the key value in our lives. And so where you end up with, I mean, it seems to me, is the old American adage, he governs best, who governs least. I mean, we're told the more of that kind of liberty, the better. And I've never known such vociferous demands as we see at the moment for freedom understood as absence of coercion. Um, and the need for unusually extensive state intervention in the face of the current pandemic has only intensified what, what I see as an almost anarchistic element in liberalism. It moves in an anarchistic direction because freedom is valorized as the value and freedom means no coercion. I would say, I mean, this is picking up what you're saying, that at the same time, and here's a huge irony of our times, 
far more people in our societies have become subject to the will of others. Uh, and I would say that that's in virtue of the triumph of liberal and libertarian principles. I mean, consider nowadays the plight of a deunionized workforce, or much worse, um, an undocumented immigrant trying to get work, or the worst case of all, the appalling number, as we now learn, of women exposed to domestic violence who lack the economic means to escape. These are all people living at the mercy of other people. They are, they are not free persons. And I also think, uh, this is very important to me, that um, far more broadly, the relations between rich states and the developing world uh, goes like that. I mean, a state or a corporation that chooses to invest in an economically disadvantaged country is always going to be in a position to exact special privileges, low wages, favorable tax rates, that sort of thing. And a powerful state offering big investment. I mean, think of China in Africa at the moment. Isn't explicit about asking such favors. The relationship is one of complete domination and subservience. So whatever the local people want, the people are the people coming in with the big investment are going to get their way. And you mentioned this, Rune, and I would like to underline what you say. What about the centrality in our lives now of the online world? And your daughter is immediately told, you know, join Facebook and do your homework that way. I mean, one of the things that really worries me as a fully paid up neo-Roman is <laughs> are we not placing ourselves and our children in dependence on the will of these media companies? I mean, I'm struck that people who hand over enormous amounts of their personal data to media companies, which can then be used for undisclosed purposes, are usually warned that there could be an invasion of their privacy. I'm saying they're undermining their own liberty because they're placing themselves in subjection to an uncontrollable will of other people. Now, of course, the media companies will say, well, of course, the data we hold is not going to be used to your detriment. But it's precisely that danger which is beyond your control to stop. I mean, that's the whole point. It seems to me that we're at a point now, but I'm a, I'm a journalist, so you know I see all moments in time as potential ruptures. But yes. it seems, and and I'm, I've I've very often been wrong. Uh, but it seems to me now that we're at a point after at least four decades of a certain kind of neoliberalism and a, a, re a really I think radicalized version of liberal freedom, where you can see that insisting on viewing freedom through individual rights. And 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 dismantling the collective institutions like unions, as as you mentioned before, uh, mass political parties where we could articulate ourselves together. That we're at a point now where it is, like you say, ironic but also obvious that that we need collective institutions, and we to a certain extent need a dynamic or or a contemporary conception of the state. That we need, uh, because you know, by the left and by the right, the state is very often considered an enemy. Do 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 not think that we should have a a more current and optimistic view of the state. Well, that's a 
I, I think that's absolutely getting to the heart of it. I, I do myself feel that the neoliberal state, that's to say the valorizing of individual liberty at the expense of any notion of community, any sense of the public interest, the common good, that is wrecking lives, uh, especially because it refuses progressive taxation. I mean, taxation is seen as almost equivalent to confiscation. And so welfare is lowered to the point where inequalities of income and wealth are at the highest in, in my lifetime. So I, I think, yes, I, I really like the way you're putting it, that we need to think differently about the state. And if I was to say a word about this, I would want to make um, two points here. Um, I mean, one is that we need to stop saying, which so many economists have been saying for the past two decades, that we are witnessing the withering and the dying of the state in the face of the fact that markets can do everything. I mean, that view should have been completely discredited by the financial crisis of 2008. Who stepped in as the lenders of last resort when the system was going to collapse? The state. Only the state did it. Only the states could borrow enough to do that. And I mean, look how it's been further discredited over the past two years. The only good thing I can say about the pandemic is that it showed how if you really need your economy saved, only the state can do that. Only the state can say, all right, look, we'll pay everyone. Um, put them on furlough. Let's hope it comes. I mean, there hasn't been so much state intervention uh, since the Second World War as there has been. So, I mean, that's one point. Let's stop talking about the death of the state and the coming of a kind of uh, post-state market society. But the, the other thing I would want to say is that we should be greatly worried about the current state system. And uh, I'm picking up a point of yours, Rooney. The most obvious is that the gravest crisis of our time is the climate emergency. And this cannot be addressed at state level. It's a genuinely global problem and it needs a global solution. But as we've seen, you know, the leaders of states, they congregate at Glasgow, uh, but some states simply stand aside. India partly stood aside, China completely stood aside, Russia completely stood aside. And then the rest who congratulate themselves, what did they, what did they achieve? All they achieved was an admission that they hadn't kept the promise of the Paris Accord in 2015. I mean, states are hopeless at dealing with the major crisis that, that now afflicts us. And another um, aspect of that crisis, another serious worry I have about the state as we now think about it, it uh, this is only a worry for Democrats, of course, but yeah. they are moving in increasingly authoritarian directions. I mean, what do authoritarian states basically strive to do? What an authoritarian state does is it closes down all sites of public discussion and debate. That's, that's what it does. But that is what is beginning to happen in European countries, including my own. Attacks on public broadcasting, hostility to the universities because they're sites of debate and discussion. And most worrying of all, I mean, we see it in Poland, worst of all at the moment, but we also see it in Great Britain, Attempts of the executive to limit the independence of the judiciary so that the executive simply expands and you get the status one will, no um, intermediate powers, nothing about a mixed constitution here. And I mean, Machiavelli is right. That is 
the death of liberties. And, and this is also a point you are making. Citizens are closing down sites of public discussion themselves as we get all our information online. I mean, there's a horrible problem here, which is the business model of the social media companies requires them to make sure that as many different views as possible are heard because that increases numbers and that increases advertising revenues. But many of these voices are of interest groups that are facing some really inconvenient truths, which they are attempting to deny. So the um, online world fills up with dangerous misinformation, which is not connected, not corrected by any kind of communal action. And I mean, it very nearly led to a successful coup in the United States this very year. And I think it is really a, a good example of, of how how you cannot even from a liberal point of view maintain your liberties if you do not have collective institutions where you can articulate a, a, a common will that actually I would even say that a neo-Roman view of freedom would be better at maintaining the liberal the liberal rights than, than, the, oh, than, than yeah. the liberals themselves. So it's not to be all Marxist here and say that they develop their own contradictions. It's just saying that there are social premises for Absolutely. liberal rights. And if you focus on just the rights, then you lose sight of the social premises. What I'm trying to say, that's absolutely right. I mean, the, the Neo-Roman, of course, uh, uh, is a, an admirer of the concept of rights. I mean, people have to have freedom so far as is compatible with some notion of the public interest and the common good. But those communal interests center on the idea that we are trying to create a society of free persons that no one is left in the kind of states of dependence or penury that neoliberalism generates with these extraordinary wealth differentials and this absolute refusal of progressive taxation, all in the name of rights. But there's a very difficult question that I've been looking forward to asking you. I've been asking it myself for a long time, which is what climate change means to our political thought and the modern theories of of the state and of, of democracy because I have I think that that we grew up intellectually in a world where we took the nature for granted that we think that everything all the political drama would be between human beings between masters and slaves and that that you know there's this um, this this understanding of nature that developed in the 60, 17th century that it's almost like a clockwork and you yes. can predict it and now we're in a world where we cannot predict nature. And you could even say that we're exposed to arbitrary power from nature. And yeah. sometimes when I think of it or discuss it with my children, I go back to Homer or something that's pre-modern to, to see this, this uh, connection or, or this conflict between, between man and nature. Like you say, how, how do you see this climate change in relation to our political theories? Well, a, a wonderful question. I mean, I think um, I would want to say, Runo, I mean, this is what I keep saying. This is another instance where there was a path not taken, which in this case, we definitely ought to have taken. And the path that we took was the one that it, it got cleared and was emergent with the rise of mechanical philosophy in the scientific revolution of the 17th century in which 
a widely accepted view of how to think about the relationship of humankind to nature was abandoned. The pathway was closed off. I mean, it used to be widely felt that we are simply part of nature. And sometimes nature was even seen as divine. I mean, Spinoza says, God or nature, Deus sive natura, they, they are the same. And there was a very broad understanding of our relationship to nature as one of care, of protection. And in, in the English discussions of this, these are Renaissance discussions of, of us and nature, it was always called stewardship. You must care for nature, it has to be looked after. But then I think in the Anglophone tradition, the emergence of philosophies like those of Francis Bacon saying, knowledge should be for increase, increase of power, increase of wealth. So nature is now seen as a resource. It's got to be dominated, harnessed, used for our purposes. And of course, that brought untold wealth to the West. But now um, the path we chose, if I may be allowed this metaphor, is leading us straight over a cliff. And, and as you say, you could say nature has been fighting back. There's no possible doubt that the most urgent need is to come to terms with nature or we shall, we shall lose the fight. But that takes me back to the states um, and states are not able to do this. I mean, it's no use the, the, the really good hearted states of Europe. And I always think then of the Scandinavian states going completely green because this is a very small part of the globe. And <laughs> as long as China is, as it is at the moment, burning 1000 million tons of coal a year and is saying it's not going to stop, we are lost. Do you see any, like when we say, and, and I really like this expression of the path not taken because it's kind of, it's respecting that the past is not just a mirror of the present. Absolutely. But, it, but it's also saying that, that there are options in the past that were not taken that we could maybe let us be inspired by today. And do you have like, historical examples of people who in our position look back at paths not taken and then were inspired by them later on say if we chose to be very inspired by spinoza now and develop a new Spinozist yes. philosophy well i think it has happened in in my neck of the woods somewhat in thinking about the concept of the state itself uh, i mean um if you think um of how how the state has been thought about as it were ever since max weber the, the, the state has been equated with the apparatus of bureaucracy and government. Um, but that replaced a much older view, which has now, um, as it were, begun to come back, which is that the state isn't just another name for the bureaucratic apparatus of <laughs> government or state and government. The state is a person. And of course, this is a Hobbesian thought, but it's been much taken up in political theory in the last decade. Of course, the person of the state is a legal fiction. It, it can't itself act. You have to authorize people to act in its name. But what this is trying to say is it would be very good to think of governments as re representatives of the state, as agents of the state, because that gives us a different sight of values 
um, the state can stand for certain values, which then governments might be held to. I mean, that, that's the, the moral thought, which I think is attractive here. I mean, states stand for continuity, uh, and we endow states with um, certain moral character, certain dignity, perhaps a reputation for decency, perhaps they should be worthy of respect. Whereas if you just think it's government, then this whole idea of how we might have a more communal sense of ourselves and a, a, a greater valuation upon the communal gets lost. I mean, I am a Republican, but I must say that in my country at the moment, the only person in government who seems to me to be thinking in exactly these terms is the Queen. <laughs> she stands for the state and she this is why she is so deeply admired. Um, there's a sense of dignity, of continuity, of worth, of respect. And these are the qualities, she wants to say, of the United Kingdom. So I think it's quite an inspiring vision. And it is a case where uh, a lost pathway has been opened up, certainly um, in, in theoretical discussions. I think that's very, it's funny that you mentioned it because I saw this TV series, The Crown. Oh, yes. And I was, and I was thinking of your reading of, of Hobbes in From Humanism to Hobbes, where you stress this this representation, this the state being a person. And I was thinking of that actually when I, when I saw The Crown, and I was thinking of The Crown as a kind of formative experience to, to, yes. to the readers. Well, that goes along with what we're saying, Luna. I mean, it was a very clever scriptwriter's idea calling it the crown, because the crown, of course, is an abstraction, um, unless it's just something you put on your head, but it isn't that, it's a, it's a highly symbolic. But the important thing is that the, it's the demands of the crown which have to be met. I have one last question for you because time is running and there are so many questions that I would like to ask you. But you've been around for, for many years now, you've seen a lot of changes and I meet a lot of young people who are very, very concerned about the future and who, who think of my generation and your generation that we didn't have to deal with climate change the way that they have to. And they very often feel that that the greatest days are behind them and that yeah. they have to confront problems that we have created. Yeah, I think they recognize that these were unintended byproducts of our way we we have life, but what do you say to these people, to young people, to give them hope? Well, um, well, I, I I was born in the war in the war, and my earliest memories are of um, having to go down into the cellar because we all thought that we were about to be bombed, which we were. Um, so those were dark times. But I do think that ours was the generation that um, invented the atom bomb and filled the oceans with plastic and is now allowing runaway climate change. Um, it, it's been a terrible generation for the planet. And I think what we just have to do is to start taking communal action at a grassroots level. If everyone were to consider joining groups that are concerned about this, because I find it hard to face the next generation uh, with what's on the conscience of my generation. Uh, and everyone has now got to help. We are at a tremendous moment of crisis, much worse than the Second World War. Of course, not. it wouldn't be much worse if there had been nuclear war, because that would have been the end of everything. 
But we are again facing the end of everything. And I don't think that that's melodramatic to say. It's obvious what we must do, however. Thank you, Quentin Skinner, for taking your time and talking to us. Well, I'm honored to be asked. And I, I love these questions. They really get to the heart of my interests. And you've thought about it, if I may say so, so deeply. Thank you very much. Thank you. Det var så min samtale med Quentin Skinner. I næste uge skal vi tale med en anden verdensberømt forsker. Det er den amerikanske klimaforsker Michael E. Mann, som tidligere på året udgav bogen The New Climate Wars. Det var Michael E. Mann, der opfandt hockeystaven. Ikke den hockeystav, som Dan Jørgensen har brugt, der betyder, at vi skal ikke gøre så meget nu, men gør noget senere. Men den omvendte hockeystav, der viser, hvordan klimaforandringen vil accelerere og accelerere af sig selv, hvis ikke vi gør noget. Han forklarer i sin nye bog, hvor kampen står, hvem det er, vi skal være bange for, og hvorfor også Venstrefløjen er i fare for at stille sig i vejen for en rigtig kamp mod klimaforandringerne.